Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, December the 10th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the death of longtime in detention former Black Panther Party member Ed Poindexter in Nebraska. Yemen has declared a blockade of all Israeli ships in the Gulf of Aden. The death toll is continuing to mount in the Gaza region of occupied Palestine, and the Israeli occupied forces are raiding areas in the West Bank, leading to more deaths and destruction in occupied Palestine. In the second hour, we look in detail at the situation in Gaza and the prospects for the lessening of tensions. In the third hour, we listen to two African National Congress of South Africa press briefings on the upcoming 2024 national elections. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We're going to today uh, in our Um Kaltum Orchestra's Film Festival feature a live concert from 1958. Let's listen in. 
Bye.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, December the 10th, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was uh, the music of Um Umkam Tum and her orchestra, a concert uh, recorded uh, in 1958. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. The second of two former members of the Black Panther Party who always maintained their innocence in the 1970 bombing death of a white Omaha police officer has died in prison. A spokesman for the Nebraska Department of Correction Services said on Friday, that Ed Poindexter had died a day earlier at the age of 79. David Rice, the other man convicted in the death of Omaha police officer Larry Menard, died in prison as well in 2016. The two argued uh, that they were targeted because of their membership in the Black Panther Party uh, by an FBI program, the counterintelligence program, that targeted uh, radical and revolutionary political groups and they questioned legitimacy of crucial testimony that helped convict them. Some of their supporters called them political prisoners. Poindexter and Rice uh, both doubted the key witness in the case who implicated them in the bombing plot, but they were unsuccessful in numerous appeals. A recording of the phone call that lured Menard uh, to a vacant house before a homemade explosive detonated appeared to have been made by an adult man, even though a teen testified that he had made the call. And a voice expert uh, who analyzed it years later as part of one of Poindexter's appeals said it was highly probable that the recording did not match the voice of the witness who was granted immunity in exchange uh, for his testimony. That teen testified that Poindexter and Rice directed him to plant the suitcase loaded uh, with dynamite recording of that police call was never played at trial and in one of his appeals poindexter said his lawyer at the time never even requested a copy of the recording but various judges decided the doubts about the recording raised later uh, weren't enough to warrant a new trial in the state of nebraska and poindexter and rice's life sentences were upheld the nebraska pardons board uh, also refused to commute their sentences despite pleas uh, from numerous advocates. The executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Nebraska, Mindy Russ Chipman, said Poindexter deserved a new trial because of the credible reports of significant misconduct in the prosecution of the case. Ultimately, you cannot uh, separate this case from the circumstances at the time, which continue to this day, namely, Law enforcement agencies targeting people and groups calling for racial justice. She said, Nebraskans can and should acknowledge the tragedy of Larry Menard's death while also recognizing the haunting possibility that an innocent man just died in custody. Poindexter's death will be investigated by a grand jury as required by state law. Though officials said he was being treated for an unnamed medical condition before he died. In an appeal to Nebraska's newly elected governor a year ago, Poindexter's advocates uh, said he had advanced kidney disease 
and had been diagnosed uh, with Parkinson's disease as well. And in other news, uh, Israeli media says that the country is framing the Yemeni threats in the Red and Arabian Seas as detrimental to global trade and shipping routes. Israel's media outlets commented uh, yesterday on Yemen's recent decision to prohibit any ship from reaching Israeli ports via the Arabian and Red Seas if uh, Gaza's need for food and medicine are not met. Tamir Haman, the former head uh, of the Israeli Occupation's Military Intelligence Division, said uh, that uh, the Yemeni threat is a problem uh, for Israeli national security and poses a very serious strategic threat to Israel's maritime freedom, pointing out that Yemeni's threats would impact Israelis in terms of higher living costs. In a related context, the military commentator for the Israeli Channel 12, Nir Vori, mentioned that Israel is attempting to convey a message to the United States that the Yemeni threats are not just Israel's problem, but a global issue requiring not only Israeli intervention, but global attention. The boy uh, emphasized that Israel is framing the Yemeni threats as detrimental to global trade and shipping routes, stressing the importance of addressing this matter globally rather than Israel tackling it alone. On his part, Chen Herzog, the chief economist at BDO Consulting, warned that the Yemeni threat to maritime shipping to Israel could lead to a hefty economic price in living costs and supply chains, highlighting that Israel's annual import volume of goods amounts to around 400 billion shekels, with 70% arriving by sea. Herzog explained that the Yemeni threats impacts Israel at three levels. Firstly, an increase in insurance cost for maritime transport to Israel due to heightened risk. Secondly, uh, the potential shift in shipping routes uh, from the east to Israel may require vessels to circumnavigate Africa instead of passing through the Bab el Mandab Strait and the Red Sea. This would extend sailing time by 30 days, resulting in increased maritime shipping costs. Third level is manifested in foreign shipping companies entirely avoiding Israeli ports to mitigate risk or due to insurance company restrictions. The Yemeni Armed Forces announced earlier today the introduction of a new actionable decision in support of Gaza, which will see the prohibition of all ships bound uh, to the occupation entity, regardless of their nationality, from passing through the Arabian and Red Seas until food and medicine sufficient to, need, to the needs of the population enter the besieged Gaza Strip. A statement Yemeni Armed Forces spokesperson Brigadier General Yahya Sari declared that this prohibition is effective immediately, noting that Sana'a, out of its commitment to the safety of maritime navigation, warns all ships and companies against dealing with Israeli ports. The Yemeni Armed Forces emphasize their full commitment to the continuity of global trade movement uh, through the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea for all ships and all countries except those ships associated with Israel or those that will transport goods to the occupation entity. It is worth noting that the spokesperson did not void the earlier equation. 
which constitutes that the Yemeni army will continue targeting Israeli ships in the Red Sea until the war on Gaza stops. Implementing previous warnings, the Yemeni armed forces captured last month the Israeli galaxy leader vessel in the Red Sea via naval operation landing on its deck before leading it to the sea off the coast of Hodeida. The army also successfully targeted two Israeli cargo ships earlier this month using a drone and missiles while forcing several shipping vessels to reroute or or entirely change course away from the Red Sea, subsequently increasing delivery periods, cost, and insurance rates. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the Gaza Ministry of Health spokesperson says snipers nested around the Al-Adwada Hospital have killed and injured several pregnant women on their way to the hospital to give birth. The spokesperson for the Ministry of Health in Gaza, Ashraf al-Kudra, reported a sharp increase in the casualties of the Israeli aggression of 17,700 martyrs and 48,780 injuries on the 64th day of the aggression on the Gaza Strip. During the past hours, the occupation committed 20 massacres, exterminating whole entire families. Dozens of distress signals were received from citizens in residential neighborhoods and schools, including the Halifa School in northern Gaza, where the occupation committed a massacre resulting in dozens of martyrs and injuries. Al-Qudra described the situation of the displaced there as catastrophic, stranded without water, food, or medical care. The health ministry spokesperson reported that an ambulance was targeted while evacuating the wounded in the vicinity of the European Gaza Hospital, resulting in injuries to paramedics and damage to the ambulance, raising the number of targeted ambulances to 57. And finally, the Israeli occupation launches has launched a series of massive incursions into several cities in the West Bank and carries out an arrest against campaign against Palestinians. Earlier today at dawn, Israeli occupation forces conducted a series of incursions into different areas of the West Bank. The operations involved raids, arrest campaigns, and the confiscation of Palestinians' belongings, along with vandalism of their property. As per Palestinian sources, occupation forces accompanied by military bulldozers entered the city of Tubas in the northeast of the West Bank. They proceeded to close its entrances, leading to confrontations between resistance fighters and Israeli forces in the city. According to Palestinian sources speaking to al-Mahadin, resistance fighters attacked occupation vehicles with a highly explosive device amid their continuous incursion into the city of Tubas. Palestinian media reported that the occupation forces shelled a house concurrently with their raid into Tubas, with reports of injuries and ambulances rushing to the scene. Resistance fighters in Tubas targeted invading Israeli occupation forces' vehicles with powerful explosive devices during their ongoing invasion. In the West Bank city of Nablus, the Palestinian Red Crescent reported that a 21-year-old Palestinian man sustained a foot injury from bullets fouled uh, by 
the occupation forces during confrontations in Asira, Ashamalia, near Nablus. The occupation forces raided the northern mountain areas of Nablus and detained Halima Ihab Abu Sahir after her house was raided by the authorities. Simultaneously, resistance fighters engaged in gunfire with the occupation forces near the old Askar camp east of Nablus. A boy and a young man sustained injuries from bullets fired by Israeli occupation forces during their raid into the camp. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, so that you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, December 10th, 2023, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Radio Network. That is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the music of love, uh, led by none other than uh, Arthur Lee from uh, Los Angeles, California, uh, via Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, that was from their second album, entitled The Capo, and of course the track was called Stephanie Knows Who. And of course we're going to move uh, right now into the siege on Gaza. I'm going to listen to a report uh, asking the question, is there a possibility for a safe zone in Gaza? Let's listen uh, to uh, this report. Israel forces tens of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza into a barren stretch of land. The tiny region is supposed to protect them from bombings and give access to humanitarian aid. But is what Israel calls a safe zone in Al-Mawasi either safe or humane? This is Inside Story. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Tom McRae. Another wave of Palestinians forced from their homes in Gaza, this time to a small slice of land in the south, designated by Israel as a safe zone. But conditions in Al-Mawasi are bleak and for those living in its makeshift camps, bitterly cold. International aid organisations don't recognise the facility and aren't providing services there. And in the last two months, Israeli forces have bombed areas where they ordered people to take shelter. Those in Al-Mawasi say there is no guarantee they'll be spared Israeli bombings and airstrikes. So how can what Israel calls a safe zone protect these civilians from suffering and attack? And could it become, as one UNICEF official has described, another zone of death? We will discuss all of this and much more with our guests a little later in the program. But first, this report by Fintan Monaghan. Civilians in Gaza are running out of places to go. Many of these people fled from their homes in the north to escape Israel's bombing campaign. Now they've been forced to come here. This barren area in Al-Mawasi covers just six and a half square kilometers. It has no reliable sources of water, food or medicine. Israel's military has designated a safe zone. But many people here say it's anything but that. Children died because of the freezing conditions here. Our life is now focused on how to find bread. The Israelis kill people with missiles and shells, and we are about to die here because of the lack of everything that can keep us alive. They send us here to face a slow death. If the Israelis don't kill us, the current conditions here will definitely send us to our death. Gaza was already one of the most densely populated areas on Earth. Now, two million people are being forced to seek safety in increasingly small patches of land. There are huge numbers of tents here that host huge numbers of people, and more and more people are coming every day from Khan Yunus. Ants and flies and other insects fill the tents. We live in a catastrophic situation. Israel has intensified its airstrikes since a temporary ceasefire ended in early December. With northern Gaza in ruins, the center and south are increasingly being attacked. And that includes so-called safe zones. They asked us to evacuate, and we did, as they said, to a humanitarian area. No, it's not a humanitarian area. There are strikes here and there. Where is the humanitarian area? Israel and Egypt control Gaza's borders, and neither are letting in refugees. 
Israel is keeping the Strip under a total blockade, cutting off supplies of food, fuel and electricity. Humanitarian aid is not reaching many of those who desperately need it. Aid workers say only a ceasefire can make anywhere in Gaza truly safe. It's not a safe zone if it's only free from bombardment, as some zones have not been. It's a safe zone when you can guarantee the conditions of food, water, medicine and shelter. Okay. Now, I've seen for myself, these are entirely, entirely absent. Those forced from their homes in Gaza live in desperate conditions and can only wait for what happens next. As Israel's bombing campaign intensifies in the south, it may not be long before they're forced to move again. Vincent Monahan, Al Jazeera for Inside Story. Okay, let's bring in our guest now. Here in Doha is Juliet Tuma, Director of Communications of the UN Refugee and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. In Geneva is Mukesh Kapila, a former UN resident and humanitarian coordinator and Professor Emeritus at Manchester University. And also in Doha is H.A. Halia, Senior Associate Fellow in International Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us here on Inside Story. Juliet, if I can begin with you. We've seen a little bit of what the conditions are like for people that are, are living there, but can you just give us more of an idea of what exactly it is like, what you're hearing from people inside Al Mawasi? How are people coping there right now? Let me tell you what I saw when I uh, was in Gaza around 10 days ago. I saw um, misery galore. I saw desperation. I saw huge, huge needs among the communities. I visited one of our shelters. It is in Khan Yunus, one of our largest in Gaza, uh, with a capacity of 1,000 people originally, but now home to more than 30,000 people. And people lost everything, and they needed everything. This was before the humanitarian post kicked in. Heavy bombardment during the day and during the night, and people continued to flock into the UNRWA shelters, which currently host more than 1.2 million people, and they're not safe. Mm. Dr. Mukesh, you've worked in global and public health for, for decades. What do you make of the conditions uh, at Al Mawasi from what you've been able to see? Can you compare to what you've dealt with in, in previous uh, circumstances? No, I think the situation in uh, Gaza is uh, completely unprecedented. I mean, I worked in many other places in uh, Iraq and Syria and uh, Bangladesh, Rwanda, Sri Lanka and, and so on. And there, the fighting uh, ha has not been so intense all at the same time in the same place. Mm -hmm. So in Gaza, of course, the Gaza Strip is very small. It's very heavily urbanized. And therefore, there is nowhere really safe. Elsewhere, there have been uh, pockets where there has been uh, reduced violence or even safe zones created and protected, usually by Security Council resolution or voluntary agreements. For example, the French did it with Operation Turquoise in uh, southern Rwanda during mm -hmm. the genocide report there. So I think the situation, I, I've not come across such a situation anywhere else in the world in the past. Okay. And Dr. Helliot, as we've heard, there's no medicine, no food, no water, no toilets uh, at Al Mawasi. What legal responsibility does Israel have to actually take care of the people that uh, have been forced to live there? 
So let's be clear, Israel doesn't simply have responsibility for Moazi. Israel is the occupying power of the Gaza territory and has been since 1967. Under international law, Israel is required to provide for the welfare of the civilians in that territory. This is not a territory that they have invaded in 2023 and then we talk about it in that framing. This is a territory that they invaded in 1967 and have never left in terms of occupation or in terms of effective control. Uh, so that's point number one. Point number two, they could provide the most incredible seven-star hotel mm. facilities in Oasi and it would not be sufficient because the space is simply not sufficient. You're talking about a territory that on, on, in general is one of the most congested, overcrowded places in the world and you're trying to squeeze in that population into a fraction of that territory. You know, it's simply not doable and it's a recipe, a recipe, frankly, for an even greater humanitarian crisis than we've seen thus far, and we've already seen an incredibly horrible one thus far. Juliet, given uh, all of that, why there? Why has Israel chosen uh, basically to put it on a completely open and exposed strip of land, do you think? Look, I would like to confirm the United Nations position when it comes to the so-called safe zones because there is no such thing in Gaza at the moment. And according to the international law, one party to the conflict cannot just like that unilaterally announce and declare a certain area a safe zone. So mm. in Gaza, there is no safe place. There is no safe zone, not even hospitals, not even United Nations shelters are safe. And on top of that, people are literally being shoved into what is less than one quarter of the space of the Gaza Strip. So they also no, have no place to go. Mm, mm. Uh, Dr. Mikesh, I mean, what are the risks of this turning into a, a more permanent uh, refugee camp? And, and what happens from that point on, do you think, the, the risks uh, for the people that are forced to stay there? Well, I think uh, if uh, enough aid could get into that area and they and aid agencies were allowed to operate there and people could safely get there, it is still preferable than uh, them being uh, bombed at random, uh, attacked in uh, numerous other places all over the Gaza Strip. So uh, I, I, I'm afraid we don't even have the luxury at the moment to actually turn this small sandy st uh, strip of a strip into a refugee center. The UN mm. uh, and other humanitarian agencies have said that their operations are more or less ground to a halt. And remember, safe zones require safe corridors to get to, both for aid and for populations. So uh, you are between literally a rock and a hard place, or in this case, between uh, the land and the sea. And so uh, I think uh, there is, a, in terms of humanitarian solutions to what is uh, a conflict problem, uh, it's difficult to know what to do. I don't think there are any humanitarian solutions here, and uh, therefore the concentration has been on stopping the fighting of the war. It's one of the reasons why, for example, the UN Security Council has not been talking about safe zones so much, as, uh, but about actually stopping the war, yes. because they cannot be safe zones in, uh, in Gaza uh, because of the generalized nature of the war. Well, given that, Dr. Hellier, what, what is the point of Israel? What, what is Israel actually trying to do? Uh, what's it trying to achieve by, by putting these so-called safe zones in place? 
If you want my honest opinion, this is a public relations exercise. This is giving Israel the, uh, the option of being able to say internationally in different Western capitals that, look, we're doing everything we can to take care of civilians in Gaza, like you asked. Of course, it's not true. Um, the evidence is there for everybody to see very, very plainly that when it comes to, quote-unquote, collateral damage, the calculations have uh, completely changed since the previous conflict and, indeed, many other conflicts around the world. Uh, we already saw this incredibly detailed report from the 972 magazine, but also other indications of this from other reports, where a single Hamas individual that's being targeted seemingly justifies, in quotation marks, um, the collateral damage of dozens, if not hundreds, of innocent civilians that happen to be in the same area. Um, and I, I want your audience to understand this. This is like saying there's a school with a shooter inside, and in order to take out the shooter, we decide that we're going to destroy the school. Yeah. Uh, as we've seen, uh, Juliet, Israeli military forces, uh, people to move to these so-called safe zones, as we saw at the beginning of the ground invasion, they pushed or tried to force everyone in the north to move south. And we've seen people displaced time and time again. But then it goes on to bomb those areas uh, that they've asked people to move. And once they've called them safe zones, is there a fear that this is going to happen again? Like I said, no place is safe in Gaza. Well, let me just tell you about our own colleagues, right? We have lost more than 130 colleagues. Half of them, half of them were killed not in the north, okay? They were killed in the middle areas and in the southern areas. This mm -hmm. is just one example that no place is safe. No place is safe, and the only way out of this, and by the way, there is no humanitarian solution. The only way out of this is a humanitarian ceasefire. This is what needs to happen, because we've seen during the humanitarian pause, while short it was, that we managed to, first of all, people had finally, finally some respite and some calm after 50 brutal days, after 50 days of hell, they had some calm and respite. And we managed to get in some humanitarian supplies, finally, including fuel. And so we need mm. to go back to that as a, as a minimum. That's what we need to push for, is a humanitarian ceasefire. Yeah, and we've seen much of the world uh, call for that. Mikesh, I can see that you want to jump in. What would you like to add? Yeah, I do, I do want to jump in because if we are taking a, a bigger picture, then there is an actual easy answer to, uh, to help the people of Palestine, and that is to open the border for allowing them uh, to go to the Rafah crossing and shelter in the Sinai until... Israel has finished its military uh, campaign. So if we are talking about uh, public relations, and we are, because this war is not just being fought in the battlefields of Gaza, it is being fought on the TV screens around the, around the world, uh, then what we're seeing is that the poor people of Palestine are being held hostage. They are being held hostage by both sides. So uh, Egyptians won't open the border when it's easy for them to do so. And all the people could go across and shelter in the Sinai. So I think it's right that Israel should be chastised for its uh, campaign. But to be honest, there is no way of fighting Hamas in a highly urbanized area uh, and keep civilians, civilians safe. But civilians can be kept safe, as you've seen in other wars around the world, where they've taken shelter in, the, in neighboring countries. And I don't understand why we are not opening borders to allow these, uh, these people. There's only, there's only a couple of million people, far more people, far more millions of people. Okay killed and infected okay. elsewhere. So let's get the bigger picture into, into mind as well. 
Okay, Dr. Hellier, do you want to jump in there? Because what do you make okay. of, of that, uh, the rougher crossing I, I do, being, I do. being opened? I, I, I do. Uh, so, and Egypt allowing potentially millions of Palestinians to, to set up camp there. Okay, so there are two things here. The first reason, uh, sorry, the first point that I want to make is that there's a very good reason why Egypt has been reticent to open up Rafah completely. And I say completely because they've actually opened it up quite significantly. And that's because they don't want to be party to ethnic cleansing. They know very well that historically speaking, when Palestinians leave their lands in Palestine, they are never allowed to go back. So that's, that's point number one. Point number two, there are seven land crossings around Gaza. Seven. Not one, not Rafah. Mm. There are seven. Six out of those seven land crossings are controlled completely, 150% by the Israelis. They refuse to open up any of those land crossings. If we want to talk about opening up the borders so that people can take shelter in safe areas, I'm sorry, there are six other land crossings that the Israelis refuse to touch and they could easily open up in order to allow Palestinians to shelter there instead of forcing them into these tiny little quote-unquote safe zones in Gaza and then forcing them again to flee down to, to the south so that they can force them into the Sinai and then never allow them back. Mm. Uh, Julia, what is the UNRWA's position when it comes to opening up uh, the crossing and allowing uh, Palestinians to, to leave Gaza? Look, uh, right now our top, top priority is to assist people inside Gaza. We have more than 1.2 million people who are in our shelters. We need to bring in more supplies, we need to bring in more humanitarian personnel, and we need fuel. And this is exactly the focus right now. Can I jump in? Yes, please. I have to say that talking about safe zones is, uh, I think, dangerous. Because the implication, and certainly from my experience, for example, in northern Iraq uh, and elsewhere, is when you talk about a safe zone, what the implication is that it's okay to carry on fighting and killing uh, civilians outside the safe zone. So what happens is that when you create a safe zone, you have the illusion that everywhere uh, else you can carry on fighting. So paradoxically, it's dangerous to talk about safe zones, especially when we all agree there are no humanitarian solutions and it's not possible to create a safe zone here. Now, mm. I absolutely agree there are multiple border crossings and Israel should also allow shelter to the Palestinians. And they're not going to keep these Palestinians in Israel, so there's less chance of them being kept away. Uh, uh, but let's be clear. Let's be clear. Are we interested in saving lives or are we interested in political posturing pro or against Israel, pro or against Palestine? I'm interested that humanitarian is saving lives. I mm. don't care. There's no ethnic cleansing going on. People are dying. There is a good, if you are allowing to concentrate these people, not allow them any rescue, not allow any aid in, what are they going to do? Next, we are going to see them going into the sea and swimming and drowning, right? So stop this talk about the mm. genocide and ethnic cleansing and so on. If our interest is in the survival of the people of Palestine, then we should look at the humanitarian side, not political posturing that is going on talking about we can't rescue the people out of, out of uh, Gaza because they will not be allowed back. There will be no one to go back because they'll all be dead inside uh, because mm. they will help. So but, I think stop this. We have to work on the, we have to work on the opening of the borders, allowing refugees out, as has been done in many other civilized or less uncivilized places around the, mm. around the world. At the moment, this is a political war. It is not the war alone that's killing it, but it is a reaction, including from the neighboring countries. Let them take their responsibility. How many of them are admitting Palestinian refugees openly? 
The, mm. So right to condemn Israel for uh, its uh, war uh, uh, crimes and so on, but it is also right to say Arabs are not showing sufficient solidarity in terms of their responsibilities, in terms of uh, allowing succor and safety to mm. uh, refugees from Gaza. Uh, let's worry about the problem of returning to Gaza when there are some Palestinians left to return. Okay. Uh, Dr. Hellier, what do you make of that, that uh, the people inside Gaza are just political pawns for, for all sides at this point in time, and that the Arab states actually need to step up and do more here? So uh, I, I want to make this clear. When it comes to the people of Gaza, I'm not sure that they have any friends anywhere, and I think, unfortunately, they've been made very well aware of that, not simply in the last few months, but in the last few decades. Okay? When we talk about having a comprehensive solution to all of this, um, I think we need to be clear. Uh, the people of Gaza ought to live in secure, stable, uh, a, a secure and stable situation in the Strip, um, and they ought not to be forced to make the choice between fleeing the Strip and never returning or dying therein. Um, so I appreciate very much the point that was made that if there is no way for them to be in the Strip safely, then they ought to be provided temporary residence somewhere else where they can be safe. But again, uh, I'm not surprised that there's this incredible reticence for Egypt to open up the border because they know that historically speaking, again, there is no situation where Palestinians have been forced to leave their land in Palestine and ever be allowed to return. Um, I frankly suspect that if the borders were opened up, you wouldn't see everybody just flee. I think there'd be a lot of people that would decide to actually stay because they prefer to stay on their land. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, the, 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 the historical ramifications of, uh, sorry, the historical precedents here, I think are what really, uh, are what's holding things up. And I also think that, again, you know, your other guest, um, he said he also agrees that Israel ought to open up other border crossings. Well, let's be clear, this is not something that the overwhelming majority um, of the calls have been over the past eight weeks. It's all been about open up the borders to, uh, to Egypt. And at the same time that that is going on, you have very clear indications from Israeli officials saying they're going to try to push out the Palestinians from Gaza and force them to leave permanently, go into Gaza, and then go to wherever else, okay? Where they're, uh, they're, and this has been made very clear by Israeli officials. So again, you know, when you have that very clear discourse and language from the highest levels of the Israeli state talking about permanent expulsion, permanent displacement. I'm not surprised that people um, in Cairo are very reticent to open up mm. the borders in that way and on the contrary are trying to get humanitarian aid in. Um, again, if it's the choice between, you know, death inside the territory uh, and refugee status outside of it, I know what I would choose, um, but that's not a choice for me to make necessarily. No, indeed. Um, Julie, I want to go back to something that uh, Dr. Hellier said uh, at the beginning of what he was saying there, that uh, the Palestinians have no friends anywhere. Obviously, you've spent uh, a lot of time uh, inside Gaza and speaking to, to people, I'm sure, on, a, on an hourly basis over the last two months. Is that what it feels like for people in there? People feel extremely isolated and abandoned. People in Gaza feel that, and those feelings become deeper and deeper well, as the war continues, but also every time there's a telecoms cut, and let's not forget there's been so far four times of, of telecoms cuts where people are completely cut off from 
each other inside Gaza. Imagine being in the middle of a war zone and you cannot call an ambulance and you cannot call the doctor and you cannot call for help or you cannot check in on your mother, on your father, on your friend, on your neighbor. There is no yeah. internet. Um, and you're completely cut off from the rest of the world. So there is definitely a sense of abandonment and isolation. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Makesh, do you think that that was Israel's plan all along, that they were just going to keep forcing people further and further south, basically rounding up the civilian population and squeezing them uh, over, over the, the course of this war since the ground invasion? Well, that's the way it uh, looks. But, you know, before uh, people start talking about ethnic cleansing and genocide, which I know is uh, trending on the, on the social media, let us, un let us understand if that this is a war which can only be fought in the way it is being fought. If, in fact, I'm not an apologist for Israel regime. On the contrary, on the contrary. But the point is, actually, if there was, if the Israelis were not taking some precautions, the number of casualties would be even worse than, than they are now. And it's bad enough as it is. And let's also be very clear. If Palestinians do not have any friends in the region, could the states in the Middle East stop lecturing the rest of the world about it and start doing something practical about it? At the moment, what's happening is the whole world is fighting a proxy war. It's a, geo it's a war of geopolitics. It's a war of culture. It's a war of religion. It's a war of God knows what else. And that's being fought on the bodies of the women and children, the men of, uh, of uh, Gaza. Now, that's what's happening. So we are fixated. Even we are falling into the trap. We are debating the narrow subject of uh, safe zones and humanitarian this and humanitarian that. We all agree there is no humanitarian solution uh, to this. And yet people are saying, no, these guys can't leave uh, you, uh, to neighboring countries. That's utter and total nonsense. It's a violation of international refugee law. Our friend from the, friends from the UN should know that, that not opening your borders is a violation of international law mm -hmm. in the same way that Israel might be committing uh, 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 international law there. I stood on the border in 1994, between Rwanda and uh, uh, Congo, when a million people were fleeing the Rwanda, uh, Rwanda genocide, the border was wide open, and many millions of people were saved. They went back. People will go back, provided there is a peace in the, in the wider region. So I think we are so preoccupied with uh, this kind of uh, uh, historic positions we have got here. We are, we are not we are forgetting that the only way, if we are really humanitarian, if our hearts really bleed for mm. the suffering people okay. of Gaza, number one duty is let them live, let them go where they can live, and let us then remain to fight for peace another day. Okay. Uh, Dr. Hedy, I know I can see that you're itching to, to jump back in here. What do you make of that, all of that? Yeah. Do you think that this is just a proxy war? No, I don't think it's a proxy war. I think that you've had, uh, I mean, of course, there are people that want to uh, pursue their own agendas. Of course, that's true. Um, but I think that the root of this problem, of course, is an occupation. Um, and uh, I would question tremendously the idea that people ought to expect that if Palestinians leave Gaza, that they're going to be allowed to go back when there's, quote unquote, peace in the region. Mm -hmm. um, there have been Palestinian refugees uh, since 1948. No Palestinian refugee population has been allowed to return at any point in that time, you know, whether it was due to 48, whether it was due to 67, uh, yeah. and anything in between, all right? Okay. So 
Um, no, I think that there is a very genuine concern. I think the concern is, is very justifiable that if they do leave, they will not be able to go back. Mm. And, if we're, and again, I want to re-emphasize this point. Um, I appreciate the idea that we ought to be requesting Egypt to open that one border. There are seven land borders. I want to see the same sort of pressure being applied for each of those other land borders. And even in this conversation, I do not see that. Okay. Thank you. We'll have to leave it there. We've, we've run out of time, but we really do appreciate uh, all your time and input. Julia Tuma, Mukesh Kapila and H.A. Halia, thank you. And thank you uh, too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on X. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. For me, Tom McRae and the whole team here, bye for now. And uh, that was a report uh, on the humanitarian crisis uh, in Gaza and the whole uh, discussion about opening up the Rafah border crossing uh, to allow uh, besieged uh, Palestinians to cross into Egypt. And uh, that, of course, uh, report uh, is one aspect of the burgeoning uh, humanitarian and political crisis that is taking place right now in Gaza, in the entire occupied Palestinian territories, and throughout the entire West Asia and North Africa region. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
week of the Rising Suns um, with uh, the leadership of Taj Mahal uh, from 1965 uh, when that group uh, issued 44 Blues, uh, which we just heard. uh, And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for this Sunday evening, uh, December 10th, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. The African National Congress of South Africa, the ruling party of the country, held a media briefing uh, today uh, discussing uh, prospects uh, for the upcoming uh, 2024 national presidential elections that will be taking place. Not a, There's not an exact date yet, but perhaps in May of uh, 2024 or perhaps a little later or maybe even earlier. Let's listen to this uh, media briefing uh, by uh, the Secretary General, Fakili Mbalula, uh, of the African National Congress. NC Secretary General Fakili Mbalula has criticized the upcoming launch of a new movement formed by former Chief Rand Chair Businessman Raja Jardine. Jardine is launching his new movement at the Riverdale Empowerment Center in Johannesburg today. The new movement is set to contest the upcoming 2024 general elections. And speaking at the Wadella Community Hall in the West Rand earlier today, Mbalula described Jardine as nothing but a funded project that has been launched to defeat the ANC in the upcoming 2024 elections. YNC Secretary General Fikini Mbalula is in Wedela Mirafong uh, sub-region, where he's expected to address a number of issues and also welcome former EFF members who are joining the ANC. Our reporter Samkela Maseko now joins us live. A very good afternoon to you, Samkela, at this point. Perhaps you could wrap things up on your end. Also, ANC Secretary General Fikini Mbalula yesterday saying the recent formation of smaller political parties, especially those who have benefited from the policies of the ANC, are aimed at destroying the ruling party. Really, walk us through what, what's emerged from today's meeting as well. In essence, the ANC Secretary General is saying that the former party leaders and those who've benefited through BEE are now turning against the party. As you can see today, that struggle stalwart and businessman Mafimurobe is there in the launch of uh, Roger Jardine's party. But we are now going to speak uh, to the ANC spokesperson, led the ANC Secretary General, led by the spokesperson, Masengu Pengu Mutsir. Thank you very much, uh, members of the media, and thank you to all the broadcasters who are here for joining the ANC on this occasion. The Secretary General of the ANC, accompanied by the Provincial Secretary of our Houghton Province, and together with the Regional Secretary and the entire leadership of the Western region, are here today to welcome members that are rejoining the African National Congress coming out of or coming from the economic freedom fighters. But in course, in addition to that, the SG also came to deliver a message of inspiration to our structures on the ground as we form part of wrapping up the manifesto review. And I'm going to invite you to um, ask the SG to say a word or two, and then we will then field questions. Well, thank you very much. Uh, um, to members of the media, we are here in West Rand today to do two things. We've got an upcoming by-elections, which we are contesting in Mirafong. We've been campaigning down there in Mirafong. And two, uh, we also have a, a significant number of uh, members of uh, EFF, which include led by uh, members who were councillors, 
of the EFF uh, who were actually dismissed uh, from their party um, for all the reasons that were made public and uh, they had a choice to go anywhere else but they decided to come back home and uh, we welcome them here uh, with uh, 50 or so plus members who came uh, uh, under their auspices. So we are very much uh, on track in relation uh, to our work and uh, that shows the confidence that people have in the African National Congress. But the second part is that um, we are aware that uh, there, are, there is a new initiative and a project uh, that has been initiated through a political party uh, that was unveiled, I think, today, um, which is led by Roger Jadin. Uh, what we have said is that uh, these are beneficiaries of uh, black economic empowerment uh, policies of the ANC, who are today in the deep pockets of capital and are turning on the revolution. And the revolution will be defended by the masses. And those beneficiaries, we have seen them uh, in different phases, uh, decampaigning the movement. We now know that uh, uh, this is a well-organized and funded campaign by big capital in our country uh, to depose the ANC in the upcoming election. They are hard at work recruiting some of the ANC veterans and they are funding them. Some who are beneficiaries of the black economic empowerment and they are also part of this project because for any project to have credibility in the face of our people, it must have, according to them, struggle credentials. People who have fought and have got some semblance of credibility. So we know that and uh, we, are, we are very clear about it, but our people are not losing faith in the African National Congress. And uh, as you would have seen with the by-elections that are taking place, uh, people have got their faith in the ANC. We are strengthened by the presence of these comrades. And there are many others uh, in the EFF, uh, some have left, whom we will be unveiling uh, joining the ANC pack. Um, and uh, we, we, we are telling them that uh, we welcome you with open hands. Uh, you will not be judged here in the ANC. And then uh, we appreciate the fact that on their own, voluntarily, they chose to come back home and they've got their reasons why they do so. So we can't speak on their behalf in that regard. But uh, this is just but the beginning of a, a big uh, journey of people coming back to their organization. And we are saying to them, welcome back to the African National Congress. Thank you very much, Eugene. I am going to um, ask, take uh, questions from members of the media. Also, just to indicate that uh, some of these comrades that have come back home are also here. So you are welcome to also ask questions um, from them. Can I start, SABC? Mr. Mbalula, two questions. Mr. Mashumurabe, has Mr. Mashumurabe served his divorce papers with the African National Congress? I see you speaking at Roger Jardine's political formation launch. Secondly, on ESCOM, Dan Morakan, how abreast were you as the African National Congress in his appointment as the new chief executive officer of ESCOM? And lastly, 
his working relationship soured and he had a fallout and was booted out of ESCOM due to the Gupta fallout, especially with those who were at the helm at the time. Are you sure and confident that he can turn around the situation and make sure that the lights are on? Denmark Rogana is a very well-traveled executive and he worked at ESCOM for the longest of time. And uh, why we are confident about him and uh, we want to express our support for him uh, to do his job uh, is the fact that he's got experience and he knows ESCOM. And uh, that's what is important uh, for us. Uh, either than just taking a nobody like we have seen who knows nothing about the workings inside to ESCOM who knows nothing about electricity supply. Marukana worked there for the longest of time. So we believe that his experience uh, will come in handy uh, for that utility and uh, he need also a support of a solid board. So this is a decision of the board. It's not a decision of the ANC. It's a decision of the board which the ANC as a party we support. We want stability at ESCOM and uh, we think the board finally has done what it is right and uh, we support the minister as well, uh, Comrade Pravin Gordon, uh, who led uh, and working with the board the finality of this matter because it is cabinet finally that employs CEOs uh, of companies. So they have done the right thing. We are on course with Sputla, uh, working with them to ensure that uh, load shedding is something of the past and we want to urge them uh, to do whatever that is in their power to defeat uh, load shedding in South Africa. As the ANC, we, we wanted at least by December uh, to have won uh, this particular uh, fight against load shedding. We are encouraged by interventions made by ESCOM working with Houghton government and other provinces uh, to deal with uh, the scourge of vandalism of infrastructure that include transformers and the Isnyoga Nyoga undermining the work of ESCOM. So as these transformers are coming back, society must also partake. And we are calling on government to exert its authority, including deploying the army uh, on the ground, boots on the ground to assist with security matters and clean out uh, our townships and our areas of the illegal Zamazamas and at the same time to safeguard uh, society. We know about uh, Mefimu Robe, he has not uh, given us any papers or this is not new to the ANC. People came and formed COPE and then uh, uh, on the back of uh, Tabombegi's uh, uh, withdraw withdrawn by the ANC they responded by forming COPE. Uh, today, we know Roger Jardine is a project. And it is a project because they say that uh, Estazen is a white man. So this moonshot pack, uh, in terms of leadership going forward, will not need a white man. It will need something close to whiteness, uh, like Roger Jardine. And uh, also this moonshot pack, it needs some semblance of a person who's got uh, struggle credentials. Roger Jardine, his family played a big part in the liberation struggle, not him. Yena is a beneficiary of a BE. And then uh, he was made by capital and capital have chosen him. So he's a puppet of capital.
We know now that uh, a number of ANC veterans like Mephi Murobe and many others have been approached one by one and then uh, they have been given money. They are on the payroll. Capital has resolved in this country to amass close to a billion rand to work uh, to overthrow the ANC government because uh, they don't get their way through with some of the things they thought it will be easy for them to happen. Now you must understand ANC in terms of our strategy and tactics and our relationship with capital is unity and struggle of the opposite. There are things that uh, we agree on, there are things that we don't agree on. And uh, to them, the ANC must be in their pocket and, and basically sing their language. And uh, we are not going to do that. We are not going to abandon affirmative action. We are going to intensify broad-based black economic empowerment. We are going to ensure that the uh, living wage is, uh, is, is actually addressed. So we know those are some of the things that uh, they actually don't like. They want us to privatize state assets. Uh, we have resisted that over time because we have said that these assets uh, must be capitalized. But uh, they cannot entirely be out of the hands of the state. But they must be capitalized. Uh, that is why we talk restructuring in order to make them, uh, uh, to make them uh, viable entities to serve our people and fund the reconstruction and development of our, of, of our government. So capital has not found its way through with some of the things that uh, they have uh, wanted the ANC to do. So they've now put up individuals a big uh, budget to support the fall of the ANC. But we know our defense is the masses of our people and that is what is important. Um, Thank you very much. I want to take on to the next video. Um, Tabitha Koba from Eyewitness News. Um, I just have a question for the SG and uh, for the lady. Um, just for the SG, a lot of Sunday papers reporting that um, President Cyril Ramaphosa and even Mr. Jacob Zuma have um, volunteered or offered themselves to mediate between um, the issue Ezulini and the ANC. Just your thoughts on that. Um, is that true and how far is that mediation process? And um, for the lady who's a former EFF member, I just want I know um, what was your position in the EFF and why did you leave the EFF? Thank you. You can start. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Sarah Khan. I was the former EFF chief whip in Restaurant Morafo and a PR council. I had no choice to leave my job. I was told either to resign, I was actually bullied into you either resign or you go. So even with uh, me knowing that I'm fired, I only found out when my salary didn't go through. Then the municipality said, unfortunately, you are no longer even an EFF member. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, with regard uh, to the question of Zulini, our position still stands. Uh, we have appealed. Um, and our position is very clear that uh, we are dealing with a fraudulent matter, which we have contested in the courts. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there are many means at our disposal to handle this particular issue. Uh, legal path is one of them, and uh, also the out-of-court settlement in terms of this matter 
is equally one option that the ANC is exploring. There is nobody who has come to the Secretary General of the ANC and basically said they offered themselves to mediate. What the President did uh, was to interact with the, the legal firm that is handling the matter, which that, matter, that meeting did take place already, and uh, the issue is handled by the Secretary General. And uh, I've got the responsibility, working with the collective, to defend the ANC. And uh, we have issued a statement and clarified the matter that the ANC will not be liquidated, will do everything to avoid that. But we have lost this case, and uh, we are fighting from a weaker position. And uh, we have explained that uh, this is a fraudulent matter. Uh, we never had a contract with this company. Uh, but uh, these are people who are milking the ANC uh, money out of a fraudulent deal that they had with uh, some of uh, junior staff of the ANC in the election house uh, as well as uh, at Lutuli House. So we have learned uh, our lessons out of this and uh, we, we have a healthy relationship with our, the people we owe our creditors and uh, in this regard uh, where we are failing to pay, we get into terms with them. Uh, we would have done that with Ezulwini. Uh, we couldn't do that simply because this was a matter of fraud in our, in our books. It will remain like that. Whether they like it or not, it will stay like that because we know that is the truth. But uh, what do you do when fraudsters um, win cases in a court of law? Uh, you've got to deal with the legality of that and also safeguard the interest of the party so that uh, the ANC is not liquidated and that is what is important. Uh, the president, as the head of the party, uh, has been leading from the front and we gave the report to the officials and we've been uh, dealing with this matter for quite some time. And we also gave a report to the NWC. But uh, shameless, uh, faceless sources uh, come out of these meetings of the ANC and give wrong report, but uh, we are going to find them uh, in no time. Uh, people who undermine the, 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 the coherence and the, the unity of our organization. It's my Wendy from the Sunday Times. SG, as it relates to Denmark Rugan as a follow-up, I mean there's been allegations of interference by Minister Pravin Godan in all these SOEs. How is the ANC going to make sure that it does not interfere with Mr. Dan Marugane in doing his job and bringing an end into load shedding at uh, ESCOM. And then secondly, you, speak about, you spoke uh, on the stage about one billion that has been set aside as part of this Roger Jardine project. Do you have proof of that uh, one billion that you were talking about? Thank you very much. Um, intelligence work uh, can be proof. Uh, we have information. Uh, we, we, we know what is happening in this country and uh, we know that Roger Jardine's uh, political party is not a party, it's a project. It's a project uh, of uh, counter-revolution in our country and it's been unveiled and then uh, covered uh, with a sheepskin. But at the end of the day, a wolf is a wolf. That's what it must be. And uh, you will see what they are going to do. Uh, they get support from capital here and abroad uh, to destabilize the ANC and then uh, to get ANC out of power or to hold ANC into terms uh, post uh, elections 
and to push the ANC below 50%. So uh, that is a festival of comedians uh, coming together uh, with the solemn aim of destroying the ANC and defeating the ANC, the revolution and the African revolution. What was the second? Uh, we don't want, uh, we want the ministers to support the boards uh, to work with the CEO. That's what we want. And uh, we don't want the ministers who override and uh, uh, do all sorts of things. Uh, but we want ministers who are hands-on to get us out of this load shedding. So we are confident that uh, the board will execute its mandate within the prescripts of the law and good governance. Mr. Mbalula, just the last one from the SABC. Mbavusom Simang, he met with Dr. Snukizigalala, president of the Veterans League, negotiating for him to rescind his resignation from the party. Has Mr. Snukizigalala given you feedback from that uh, all-night meeting that took place on Saturday? Well, I've also read it in the papers, uh, but uh, uh, he's got to do what he has to do because that was his deputy. Uh, his deputy, with all the experience he's got in the ANC, he has served as a resignation through the press. Uh, I've not received that letter at Mutuli House. And then uh, I've also not uh, expecting to receive a letter of resignation at Lutuli House. Lutuli House is not a branch, it's an office. You resign in your branch. So TK still has to give me a report uh, from the branch of uh, Comrade Mavuso as to whether did he serve his resignation to the branch. Uh, but nonetheless, we are steadfast. Uh, we are not deterred. Many of these shenanigans are going to unfold. And uh, there's political parties that have been formed. Uh, some of them bear the name of the ANC and we are fighting that in court, including our trademark Umkonto Wesizwe. It is alleged again that uh, former leaders or leaders of the ANC are involved with the formation of this party for a solemn reason of getting rid of Ramaphosa. Because they say that uh, Ramaphosa must go uh, and all of that uh, uh, for the same cause about uh, the issue of Palapala. We have addressed them about these issues. All what we are saying to former leaders of the ANC, give Ramaphosa a space to lead. You were leaders before. You know the unwritten law of the ANC conventions. You don't criticize the person of which yourself you have been a leader before. We take the weaknesses of Nelson Mandela as the former president and his strength into the administration of Mbeki. We do the same with Jacob Zuma. And uh, with Ramaphosa now, we'll continue to do the same. It's a relay. And that is why when Mandela came to the ANC and raised issues about HIV and AIDS, the NEC then addressed Mandela and said, give Comrade Tabo a chance to lead. It didn't mean that uh, Mandela did not have a, 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 a valid criticism and suggestion. He did not even criticize. He was making suggestion. He said, we hear what you say, but give people antiretrovirus. People, including my family, are dying of HIV and AIDS. So give them antiretrovirus. We have given people antiretrovirus in South Africa. Life expectancy has increased. So all we are asking is a matter of principle. Give this comrade 
the same respect that we accorded you. Every day, ANC leaders are overshadowing the president of the ANC. Because Ramaphosa is a nice person. He wouldn't uh, go into the mud and do all of these particular things. But uh, we are pleading with them that they uh, give him a chance. It is time now. He had to contend with a number of things. At the helm of the leadership of the NC, he had to deal with COVID-19 at the time of his presidency. He had to deal with July riots at the time of his presidency. He had to deal with state capture and corruption. Ramaphosa is hated even within our ranks by people who think that uh, he is steadfast in the fight against corruption. He had to deal with all of those things in his presidency. He had to deal with state capture that has ravaged, undermined even law enforcement agencies. Through our resolutions and our renewal path, he needs all the support to lead the ANC decisively going forward. So we are not at war with everybody, but there are people who call themselves veterans of the ANC, uh, who by day are leaders, they've got track record by night, they sit with counter-revolution on the table and plot the downfall of the revolution. Are you referring to former President Mbeki and former President Zuma in undermining Ramaphosa? I'm referring Ramaphos to everybody. I'm referring to anybody. I don't want to mention names because I'm sick and tired of, of clarifying myself week in and week out. I'm referring to anyone who was a leader of the ANC. Give Matamela a chance to lead. It's his time now. Ramaphosa, his time will come to an end too. He must respect the leaders who are coming. That's all what we are saying. We are leadership. If they want to address the NEC about their criticisms, I can give them a platform there anytime. Some of them are ex-officio. Anytime they are welcome in the NEC. But it is time wasting to sugarcoat things. When the ANC is suffering blows, not from external, but from internal, and a serious blows. Mavusom Simanga, before he left, and when we made a call that they must stop decampaigning the ANC, he said on Mandela's day that Mandela will not, be, will not be brave, will not be happy of ANC government. That thing was not said by Malema or John S. Dayton. It was said by Mavusom Simanga and used by our enemies to counter the ANC. Now, now, and then he says he's been raising issues with the ANC and all of that, things are not changing. Things are changing. And uh, we can only work together with them to get things to change, including their demand, some of them, that the president uh, uh, must have not been defended in parliament. Uh, we, we want that demand, that they put it on the table, because all things have unfolded now. Public protector, chastised, insulted, came up with a report on the Palapala matter. Reserve Bank came out with a report on the Palapala matter. Now, maybe when the president gets to be arrested for Palapala, then there will be something else. We are not going to abandon the president and weaken the party. Uh, Ramaphosa is an asset to the African National Congress. Even those who want him gone is because they fear 
that Ramaphosa wins hegemony for the ANC. You cannot ask for somebody to leave uh, South Africa's politics if he's weak as a president. Uh, you can only ask somebody who's stronger. So we are open like that uh, to, our, to, our, to our leaders. We respect them and uh, we accept dissent, including their criticism. But uh, they must also accept the fact that where we differ, we differ. We must be pursued as leadership to look in a different direction. We have never, for instance, asked for people to campaign for the ANC. We have asked them not to decampaign the ANC. That's what we have done uh, as the leadership of the African National Congress. Thank you very much. I suppose we've done uh, police. I don't see any new hands. We had to stretch it because uh, you were decent enough uh, to await and stay through this activity. But thank you very much. We are adjourned. That was essentially the Secretary General of the ANC speaking on uh, and defending the President of uh, the African National Congress and also welcoming new members of the party. Interestingly saying that ex-official members of uh, the National Executive Committee of uh, the ANC, which would be former President Zuma and former President Mbeki, must go to the NEC and raise their arguments on the trajectory of the party in the National Executive Committee instead of speaking in public. Welcome back. Welcome back. And uh, that was a media briefing uh, by the Secretary General of the African National Congress uh, speaking on a number of issues, uh, one related to the uh, resignation of several officials uh, from the Economic Freedom Fighters Opposition Party uh, who have uh, joined the African National Congress. And uh, We'll continue to cover uh, developments in South Africa leading up uh, to uh, next year's election. There was another media briefing uh, just four days ago uh, where uh, the Secretary General and others addressed uh, the press. Uh, let's listen to that uh, report uh, from uh, just four days ago. We are ready to start. Good day, ladies and gentlemen of the media. Thank you for coming through this afternoon to hear the Secretary General of the ANC speak to a few issues that we want to lift up in the political environment in our country and internationally. With that, I'd like to hand over to Comrade SG, Comrade Figil Mbalula, over to USG. Uh, thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the press, as well as uh, fellow South Africans who are connecting with us online and uh, live streaming and uh, through different channels of our media. We want to thank you for responding, as always, uh, to our request to this uh, media briefing uh, which will address a few issues. The National Working Committee of the ANC met uh, on Monday when uh, the sheriff uh, was here outside uh, our building. 
a few issues we want to address. One is that uh, we call upon the veterans of the ANC to stop decampaigning the organization and work through the structures of the organization. The leadership of the ANC from its president Cyril Ramaphosa and all of us have availed ourselves to the council and the direction of our veterans and stalwarts. But on daily basis, the veterans of the ANC have led a charge on this organization and uh, attack the ANC and decampaign our movement. In a difficult period, faced with difficult uh, issues. If there's anywhere where we are as a leadership, we are available. 12 o'clock midnight all the time. If they wish to make a call on us, and uh, like they have done on numerous occasions, on issues of renewal and so on, we as leadership elected in Nazareth in the past conference, we believe we assist with these matters. In a couple of days, it will be the first year anniversary of this leadership. And there are a lot of issues that have been raised, which some have not been addressed. but uh, they have not left our political agenda. Issues of uh, integrity in the organization have not left our platform and the agenda. We have established the Integrity Commission. We are responding to all the issues the Integrity Commission have raised with us, including a number of cases uh, that have been uh, uh, forwarded to the National Executive Committee by the Integrity Commission. And the NEC, as it meets, will not only reflect but will take decisions on the matters that have been brought to its attention by the Integrity Commission. All members of the ANC implicated to the Zondo Commission who have not appeared before the Integrity Commission, which its number is around uh, 89 people, have been referred to the Disciplinary Committee of the ANC to attend uh, to them. All of them, without exception, their cases are referred to the disciplinary committee and the disciplinary committee will deal with the matters. As um, early as last week, I met with all the presenters of the ANC DC, led by Uriel Abrams, to process all these matters, including members of the ANC who are bringing the organization in disrepute in terms of public spirit, and everyone else to be attended to. So, 
the cases that it is alleged were not attended to, we have compiled them, we are presenting them to the NEC and bringing an update on all those cases, and these are about uh, 54 cases. There was a report in the media that uh, we have uh, shelved uh, cases of integrity and then reduced them to 53. That report is incorrect. We've got cases of people who have appeared before the Integrity Commission and were processed and uh, there were decisions by the previous NEC but um, because we are on the path of uh, renewal we have brought those cases back and given report on them and we should after the NEC have reflected on those cases we should be able to brief members of the media and the public at large about each case and what conclusion have been made. We're supposed to have a, a meeting of the NEC special. Uh, we realize that because of leakages and the distortions of NEC meetings to a point where people are quoted in verbatim, it has constrained us to convene a meeting of the ANC NEC virtually. Uh, which require that we need to meet physically as an organization uh, to conclude on these matters. But nonetheless, we will convene a special meeting to conclude on the matters of um, uh, uh, terms of reference of the Integrity Commission, which have been uh, concluded by the National Executive Committee of the NC. We wish to emphasize that the ANC will speak for itself and not through faceless sources. And those who speak as faceless sources do not represent the positions of the African National Congress. We will convene January 8 in Pumalanga Mbombela Stadium on the on the 13th of January in Bombella Stadium. We will, in February 24th, uh, launch our election campaign at Moses Mabida Stadium. Depending on when the elections will be held, uh, we are planning our Siangova rally at uh, FNP Stadium. We're going into these elections campaigning hard amidst the challenges and uh, with the sole and purpose of the ANC emerging victorious and gaining more support among the populace of uh, South Africa. On rent manipulation, Before the rant manipulation, we also want to welcome the Concord outcome in relation to the Electoral Act and Concord having affirmed that uh, there is nothing unconstitutional about the Act. Um, we want to thank uh, and join uh, many South Africans as the ANC in welcoming the decision of Concord on this matter, as it enabled the Electoral Commission 
uh, to begin with its work with uh, absolute uh, certainty. We await the President to decide on the date of the elections. From our side, as the ANC, we are almost uh, nearing the conclusion of the selection process of public representatives. And for the first time, I think uh, you will realize that there's not been any fight, uh, any squabbles. People were free to nominate themselves, to campaign for themselves in social media and everywhere else, uh, to motivate for themselves uh, for election going into parliament. Our process where it is now, people have been interviewed, they have been screened, so that uh, we don't have public rep representatives with uh, criminal records, uh, people who are implicated uh, in other uh, matters in terms of the law, so we want public representatives in good standing. Our list, once it is finalized, will also be subjected to integrity processes of the ANC. And uh, we looking forward to convening our national list meeting sometime next year to conclude the process. So we've been hard at work, and uh, this is a lot of work that we've been uh, embarking upon. We'll, go, we'll give uh, fuller details on these matters uh, sometime next year in terms of the selection of public representatives and answer your questions, including the distortions about uh, the standing of ANC structures in relation to this process. We'll clarify those matters at that, uh, at that point. The ANC's Working Committee has uh, thoroughly reviewed <coughs> the comprehensive report from the Economic Transformation Subcommittee concerning manipulation of the rent. The Working Committee has resolved that this report should be presented at the forthcoming meeting of the National Executive Committee to enable a detailed analysis of the repercussions of this manipulation on the most vulnerable segments of our society. The ANC reiterates its call for law enforcement agencies to act decisively and expediently in bringing criminal charges against those individuals and banking institutions implicated in manipulating the rent. This egregious act against the South African populace cannot be left unpunished. The people of South Africa rightfully demand and deserve justice. We insist on accountability from those 
um, who have willfully compromised our economy for their gains. The rent manipulation was a crime of corruption and we must call things by their first names. Corruption in the private sector is still corruption and its consequences are just as severe. Furthermore, we are said that the directors and executives of these banks should face prosecution in their individual capacities, being held personally responsible for the detriment they have inflicted upon our economy. This act is nothing short of a crime against the people of South Africa. We maintain that uh, the 43 million rand